welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Does that touch your heart? Amen. How many Seventh-day Sabbath keepers are there here this morning? Could I see your hands? Amen. How many of you believe in miracles? What is the first great miracle of the Bible? I haven't heard it yet. What is the first great miracle in the Bible? There it is. Creation. God spake, and there was light. And the evening and the morning... We're what? Do you believe it? 24-hour day, do you believe it? Are you a Sabbath keeper? Do you believe that the Sabbath is a memorial of creation? Do you believe in miracles? The last great miracle of the Bible is the second coming of Jesus. Can you believe in creation? Can you believe in the second coming of Jesus? Then can you believe in the greatest miracle of all in the middle of the Bible, which is the love of God at the cross, which will prepare you for the second coming of Jesus? Three great miracles in the Bible. There's a conservative Christian denomination It's wrestling with a very large problem that the big mainline Protestant churches have already succumbed to, and that's evolution. Third world believers want to hold firmly to the Bible, to the literal six days of creation. They want to hold firmly to what the Bible presents as the worldwide flood. That took place in Noah's day. Some believers, some very significant, prominent in the Western world, can no longer believe the literal Bible account. In other words, the earth is billions of years old. A short earth history is scientifically impossible, or at best, scientifically doubtful, they say. And these scientists are in educational institutions. The Genesis account of creation must be literally naive and intellectually uh, dishonest. Is the Bible story of creation, that miracle, is it believable? Is the Bible story of the virgin birth of Christ any more scientifically believable? Is the exodus of Israel from Egypt, historically 
validated? Can the miracle stories of the repeated deliverances of God's people be defended rationally? Can we hold to the resurrection of Lazarus after he had been dead four days in the grave? Does the literal, visible, personal return of Jesus as a miracle of miracles make any sense today? The same conservative denomination is also riven with controversy over the very gospel itself. Some declare it would have been impossible for the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself the fallen sinful humanity of our our flesh of temptation and live therein a life of totally overcoming and of condemning sin in that flesh. Why, Jesus must have sidestepped the genetic sinful inheritance of all men. So the scientific preponderant facts of life prove the universal nature of sin, and for us to ever live a sinless life would be as impossible as a six days creation week. So it is said. You know, the two ideas are parallel. And just as the mainline denominations long ago gave in to evolution, so must, must this little conservative church also give in to the popular doctrine of continued sinning in human nature? Must we give in to that? You know, these two ideas of evolution and living, continuously living in sin, they're not unrelated. They go together. Can we sinful human beings overcome sin? Are we so hopelessly entangled in continued sin? It's nice to say that Jesus is our Savior. He overcame so we can overcome too. But what did he actually accomplish? Well, if he came to fight our battle against sin with equipment that we don't have, the victory that he claims is irrelevant to us. The only conclusion has to be that he saves us in our sins. And that is exactly the basic thesis of why Babylon is fallen is fallen. It's a false gospel. Do we want to give in to that? You can't avoid this idea that continued sinning is the basic idea of Babylon's theology and teaching. If so, then we are going to be locked into the darkness of Egyptian bondage to sin. We're going to be locked into it instead of being delivered from it. But the everlasting gospel is good news, friends. Better than that, Jesus came to fight our battle with the same equipment that he has given to us. He gave us that same victory, not merely offered it to us. He has the Son of God. He was the Son of God, but the Father has adopted us as sons by Christ Jesus himself, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And it's not a maybe or a perhaps. If you do the impossible first, he tells us, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There is a small Protestant church. It's always officially taken a firm stand that The six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 are true and literal. 
but it is now having a heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching debate as leaders are wrestling with this creation, this evolution issue. And the scientists, at least the vocal ones in the church, insist that intellectual honesty requires that the church abandon its naive belief in a literal six-day creation 6,000 years ago. They insist that the geologists and the paleontologists and other scientists tell us that the evidence is irrefutable for man being here at least, uh, if not 50,000 years, 100,000 years. And the planet has been around for millions of years. I have to ask myself, would a dozen doctoral degrees in all of the scientific branches of evolutionary study, would that clear my mind to accept it? As a Christian who believes in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world, can I believe that Genesis 1 is literally true? Jesus did. Jesus did. Do scientists have a good track record of infallibility? Do scientists have a track record of infallibility? Now, I don't want to be a naive simpleton. I must respect the intellectual level of these genius-like people, but belief in Jesus Christ grips the vitals of my soul. And if I believe in Jesus, and if I believe that God so loved the world, can I safely believe what Jesus says? Can I safely believe what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1? Good morning, Your Majesty, King Solomon. Suppose God were to address you that way. Good morning, King Solomon, Your Majesty. You would say, why do you call me King Solomon? I don't have any wisdom. But, dear friends, we're coming to the time, we're in it right now, where we need the wisdom of Solomon. We need it. We are facing very perplexing times and problems. Are we going to believe, Genesis 1 through 3, that God created the earth in six literal days? Or are we going to be crushed under the scientists who declare that evolution alone is the answer and, and who ridicule us, who believe in the first great miracle of creation in the Bible? Is salvation by faith alone, or is it by faith plus works? Are the Daniel and Revelation time prophecies a day for a year? Are, is, are these time prophecies meaningless jargon, or can they be understood? Is there a manifestation of God's spirit of prophecy today as clearly inspired as were the prophets of old? How can we judge truth and Subtlety, disguised air, subtly disguised air. I tell you, we need the wisdom of Solomon today. We need it. Let me give you an illustration of how we can judge truth. There were two women who confronted King Solomon one day, and each claimed that a certain num number one baby was hers. That baby is mine, woman one, number one said. Number two, two woman said, no, that baby is mine. Both of them pressed 
their claims, one more loudly than the other, number two lady pressed them quietly. Well, uh, the King Solomon back in those days didn't have labs to send in the DNA to determine who was the rightful mother. So it seemed almost impossible to determine who is telling the truth here? Who is the real mother of this baby? Well, Solomon had some wisdom. He got a bright idea. You know what test he employed? He employed the test of love. He employed the test of love. Sorry, ladies. I can't judge which of you two is telling the truth, said King Solomon, so let me be fair. Bring me a knife, and I'll cut this baby in two, and each one of you can have a half. And the number one lady simply folded her arms and said, go ahead and do it. Awaited the results. And number two lady shrieked loud enough so that she could be heard all the way down to the temple. No, your majesty, give number one the baby. I can't bear to see you kill it. Love had shown the king who the baby belonged to. Now, in every theological puzzle that confronts you, where the evidence seems balanced between opposite views, and you know, the Lord frequently permits doubts. You know, pegs on the wall to hang doubts on? The Lord frequently allows pegs on the wall for one to hang their doubts on. But the genuine determiner of where truth lies is the test of love, of agape. You're not going to be able to sit on the fence to be able to determine what truth is. It's going to be either or, this or that. You just can't sit on the fence because in the end, in the road of life, you're going to have to decide frankly and openly between the mark of the beast and the seal of God, which is the love of God written in the heart with His commandments. So you have to look to see where the agape is, the true biblical love. So don't be fooled by the sentimental love that is a counterfeit of agape. Keeping the commandments of God will be the final test in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. But let's remember that only love or agape is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 10 verse 10. Outward Conformity to the letter of the Ten Commandments may mask a heart that is bitterly devoid of agape. We're talking here about good thoughts. Do good thoughts motivate outward behavior? The love that is in John 3.16, God so loved the world is itself a very highly sophisticated truth that is profound enough to challenge these dozens of doctorals. Jesus is the Son of God who came down from heaven. He became human. He took our humanity unto himself. He redeemed us. He brought us to his Father's house who adopted us 
forthwith as his children. That love is something that is phenomenally miraculous and extra human. Itself is a miracle beyond our grasping. Just as God created this earth in six days. So learn to recognize. Can you recognize one miracle? Can you recognize the miracle of the cross and God's love? Then can you believe another miracle too? Can you see another miracle? And then can you see another miracle? And then can you see another miracle? Faith that is motivated by love sees miracle after miracle after miracle. Miracles are based upon the same footing. One we can see and the other none of us has been able to see with our natural eyesight as yet. We can see the love of God revealed at the cross of Christ. Amen? I never saw the creation of this world in six days. Did you? I wasn't around. But I can see it and believe it because of the miracle of the cross. Faith teaches me that. History, as the Bible tells it, covers approximately 6,000 years only. Thoughtful Bible students have long understood that the second coming of Christ and the close of the great controversy with Satan would occur within that period of time. But evolutionary science says that rational minds must believe that this earth is just millions of years old. The conflict between belief in the Bible and this long age philosophy is intense. And all of the Bible prophets in general and Jesus Christ himself accepted the Genesis account of our beginning in six literal days, which is the miracle of God's creation. And God spoke, and there was light, and the evening and the morning, 24 hours, was the first day. Now, if that miracle never happened, how can we be sure of other miracles? The Bible describes the virgin birth. It describes the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Those are miracles, amen, for an example. And if the resurrection of Jesus from the dead never happened, then the Apostle Paul says we are yet in our sins and we're lost forever. Throughout the whole great controversy with Satan, time and again, those who believe the Word of God have been ridiculed. But time and again, God has vindicated them. But it seems necessary that first... We must stand alone in our belief of miracles. Jesus said, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he that endureth unto the end shall be saved. He asks us not to be ashamed of me and of my words. These apparent conflicts in science or theology call for very deep heart searching because we don't want to be fanatics, nor do we want to be unbelieving of God's word, precious truth. His promise to those who exercise an intelligent faith is ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded. World without end. Isaiah 45, verse 17. And had the Sabbath been kept faithfully, it would have been an effective barrier against error and false worship. How many of you live in a house? Where do the rest of you live? Well, if you live in a house, what is that evidence of? If you live in a house, what is that an evidence of? Somebody built it. Get the point? 
If you live in a house, it's evidence that somebody built it. Somebody masterminded it. Now, the Bible appeals to the existence of this world, and it says that is a proof that there is a creator God. This world is a house. Someone had to build it. Someone had to create it, and that was the creator God. And this creator God is the only true God, since all other so-called gods are devoid of creative power. And this creator is therefore to be worshipped supremely and exclusively. God the Father gave all of the creating over to who? To Jesus, the Son. And Jesus made the world in six days. And he rested when? On the seventh day. And since the Sabbath thus points to the creator as the only true God, the keeping of the seventh day is connected with the true worship of the Father and the Son. There's a distinction between the Creator and us who are His creatures. The Sabbath keeps this distinction continually before our minds. So the keeping of the Sabbath is the Lord, as the Lord directs us, it is a very distinguishing mark of the true worshipers of the only true God. And there is a widespread error out there that teaches that the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 was not a 24-hour day, but a long period of time, perhaps millions of years. In other words, there's a teaching out there, and it's been accepted by Protestants. And you say, well, where did they get it from? They got it from the Mother Church, that the days of creation were long ages of time. It's called evolutionary creationism, that God created the world over six days of long ages of time. Could have been millions, could have been billions of years. How does that go down with you? The Bible shows that they were literal 24-hour days, measured from one evening to the next evening. You can read it right through in Genesis chapter 1. The 24-hour day is determined by the length of time that the earth takes to rotate once on its axis. And the 365-day year is determined by the number of rotations the earth makes in each orbit around the sun. And the month is determined by the approximate length of time the moon takes to orbit once around the earth. How old is the earth? How old is the earth? And how long will it be until Jesus keeps his promise, I will come again? You know, people are digging around into the Bible, record of the history of the world. And what the Bible says is squarely against the theory of long-age evolution. By adding up the lifespans of the antediluvian patriarchs from Adam to Noah and the following Bible history so that there is a total picture from creation until the first coming of Jesus, the sum comes up to approximately 4,000 years. And that has been the view of most Bible students for several hundred years. And then adding the years since the birth of Christ, the Savior of the world, the total is about 2,000 years, in fact, maybe a bit more, making roughly a grand total of 6,000 years since the Bible story of creation. Yes, scientists laugh at that, but there are, these are the stark realities. Either you believe the Bible or you believe in evolution. That's all there is. And there are competent scientists in all the fields of natural science who do believe the Bible record of God's creation in a literal six days, and its subsequent history. And you can add to this fact that Jesus believed it 
as well as his apostles, and add to that the fact that millions of kind-hearted, unselfish, loving people believe the Bible and they cherish the blessed hope of Jesus' second coming, just like the Bible says, and you add all of that together, and it means that you have plenty of evidence upon which to base a reasonable faith. The alternative is a very despairing worldview, even if it is called Christian evolutionary development of man. And now, there's one highly respected Christian writer, Ellen White, who has written 40 or more times that the second coming of Christ will come within this period of 6,000 years, implying that the millennium, the thousand years of Revelation 20, will be a final rest for a weary and worn-out planet before the joyous recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. So from what comes the seven-day week? There's nothing in nature that accounts for it. It owes its origin to the creation of the world. In six days, and the creator's rest on the seventh, and thousands of years after the creation, the seven-day week shows that creation week was 168 hours long, just as every week since then has been 168 hours long. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Why? Because he made the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And this very commandment indicates the six creation days were the same kind of days that he allocates for our affairs each week. Amen? And no one can keep the seventh day as Christ directs and at the same time believe that it took millions of years for man to evolve from the lower forms of life. The keeping of Christ's Sabbath commits a person to the creation in six literal 24-hour days. I say the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath commits oneself to a six literal days of creation. The evolutionary theory is one of Satan's attempts to destroy the God-appointed basis for keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. If he can get us to believe in evolution, the Sabbath is gone, and that's exactly what he's trying to do. His scheme is leading people away from the truth, as it is in Christ. The man-appointed substitute for the seventh-day Sabbath is what, folks? That's right, Sunday. You know, Sunday has deprived the world of the Lord's barrier against the error of evolution. Sunday keeping has deprived the world of a barrier against the error of evolution. And it started with the Catholic Church. And they believe in evolution. And so do the Protestants who keep Sunday. Have now, as mainline churches, accepted Christian creationism or, or evolutionary creationism and long-age theory of the history of the earth. And now that assault is on us. Lord, keep me from saying too much here this morning. The widespread acceptance of this substitute has made it easy for many to be deceived on this point of evolution. The widespread acceptance of Sunday. Well, faith without works is dead, and Christ's Sabbath certifies that the keeping of the seventh day is a divinely appointed way to reveal faith in the creation of this world in six literal days. 
Every time you witness as a Sabbath keeper to the seventh day Sabbath, you are witnessing to the six literal days of creation. All who believe in creation in six 24-hour days should reveal their faith by keeping Christ's seventh day Sabbath. They should not do their own work on that day. Christ did not work on Sabbath. On the seventh day, He rested. It's His rest. Seventh-day Adventists should not work on the Sabbath. They should keep God's Sabbath rest. Otherwise, they're witnessing to the truth of error, to error. Among the multitudes who keep Sunday, many do not, of course, accept the evolutionary theory. They maintain their faith in the creation of the world in six 24-hour days. And as the light shines brighter and brighter upon the Word of God, many of those who are honest in heart who are keeping Sunday they will see the significance of keeping the seventh-day Sabbath in God's appointed way in order to show their faith in the world being created in six literal days. Which is easier, to endure ridicule over Sabbath-keeping or be burned at the stake? It's not easy. A is not easy to be ridiculed. And we know that evolutionary scientists just ridicule students who believe in the creation in six literal days, and they represent their theories as scientists say, our theories are factual. They can be evidenced. You guys who believe in creation in six literal days, you're stupid and you're ignorant and you're naive and you're superstitious. And creationists are embarrassed, and you simply have to believe in a miracle. And science says what? Miracles are impossible. Science says miracles are impossible. Evolution says miracles are impossible. That's why life evolved over billions of years, over natural processes that occurred. And even if you scale down that long-age history of the earth like some Christians want to and make life evolve over long periods of time, not in billions of years or millions of years, you still have a non-personal involvement of God in creation. God spake and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Well, if you can believe in one miracle, then you can believe in two miracles. And miracle number one is what the Bible says about the end of the world, that Jesus will return personally and visibly and soon, and all of the book of Revelation will be fulfilled. And miracle number two is what the Bible says about the beginning of the world, the creation in six literal days. And so you can't believe one without the other. You can't believe in creation without believing in the second coming of Jesus. And if you can believe one, you will be able to believe the other. But believing one or both requires something else, another miracle. Do you know what that other miracle is? It is called faith. Believing something you can't see physically, at least now. And there's a problem. Because there is a miracle, number three, that solves the problem, but it is often neglected in these whole creation evolutionary debates. Faith is predicated upon the miracle of the cross of Christ. Not that a man was crucified, thousands were crucified, but the miracle is the kind of love that led Jesus to go to that cross voluntarily for you and for me. And in the Bible, it's called agape, a different kind of love than humans can know except by divine revelation. Agape is a length and breadth 
and depth and height that is totally unworldly, directly contrary to human nature in every respect. It is a love that involves the total pouring out of oneself, emptying oneself even to the point of relinquishing one's eternal life. The death of the cross involved enduring the curse of the law, what Moses called being cursed of God. The sacrifice of Christ involved infinitely more than most Christian people, Catholic or Protestants, have even begun to comprehend. The love that is revealed there at the cross is the miracle of miracles, the most amazing demonstration that the world and the universe have ever seen. And this miracle of miracles, friends, is not just set before you in cafeteria style. You know what we mean by that? You can't pick the macaroni here and the beans over here and say, I don't want the rest. You either take it all or you don't have any of it. You have to take all of the cross or have nothing to do with it. Believing it is salvation. Disbelieving it brings yourself a self-condemnation, a choice for self-suicide in a final judgment. And the one who disbelieves this miracle indeed deserves uh, all of the epithets that Evolutionists hurl at creationist students, but God doesn't hurl any kind of epithets, even at the wicked at the end. God loves the wicked to the very end, and he weeps when they choose to disbelieve what they have been given. And so let us grace-given, grace-saved people accept creation. Let us accept the Sabbath, the keeping of Christ, seventh-day Sabbath. It's a mighty cleaver between those who accept the six-day creation of Genesis 1 and those who keep Sunday and are vulnerable to accepting evolution. The Sabbath and the six days of creation in Genesis 1, they're inseparable, inseparable. On the other hand, setting aside of the Sabbath in favor of keeping Sunday is setting aside the six days of creation in Genesis 1. And so the only scriptural alternative for everyone who keeps Sunday and still believes in creation, is for them to keep the seventh day as God commands it. If the Sabbath loses its intended effect, all of the rest of the Ten Commandments are voided because Christ's Sabbath commandment seals God's law. The Sabbath commandment represents the authority of God himself. Why does Satan hate the Sabbath? If Christ the Creator is ruled out, In a rejection of Genesis 1, the foundation is removed for Christ as our only Savior. If the Creator is not also our Redeemer, then the plan of salvation would be a failure. Who but the Creator can recreate, can restore us? Through the prophet Ezekiel, Christ says, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that I am the Lord. Tens of thousands have lauded Christ as the best man and the greatest teacher, but they do not regard him as being truly God. This departure from the truth never would have come if they had continued to keep Christ's Sabbath. Everyone who keeps the seventh day as Christ directs is thereby committed to the deity of Jesus Christ as Son of God, the creator of all. No need to believe in evolution. Incidentally, we must note the fact that evolution is not a proved truth. It's only a theory. Only a theory, which takes just as much, well, it takes less faith. (laughs) 
It rests on geological data, which can be more satisfactorily explained by the Bible and by the flood that occurred in Noah's day. And so, yes, through the Sabbath, we surrender ourselves totally to the Lord, and we place ourselves as, at his disposal. Through the Sabbath, we give ourselves to Jesus as his servants. The Sabbath is a great equalizer of all men and women. The uneven divisions of society level out as the Sabbath comes each week. Every one of us needs the rest that only God can give us through his Sabbath day. Whether we are poor men or rich men, educated or ignorant, great or small, all of us gather together as a family to worship God who is the creator of us all. It is the great leveler of all humanity. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.